Proverbs chapter 8, we are already in part 7 of our series. Today we're going to look at several different ways people talk about it. I've entitled it the Eternal Covenant of Grace. I'll be calling it some different things during the message too, and I'll explain as we go. Proverbs 8, verse 7. Last week, the reason I'm starting here is last week we had talked about wisdom. We talked about going to this text. I can't remember if we read any of it or not last week at all, but this is talking about wisdom, it's talking about Christ himself. Proverbs 8, 7. And try to kind of think about this in the context of a covenant, which would be involved with the Trinity, dealing with the God that cannot lie, who is all-wise. Verse 7, For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is hateful to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. Nothing twisted or perverse is in them. That line right there was a, is a popular line, maybe an idea we have in our mind when we defend the faith, right? We believe that this text agrees with 1 John text that says that there is no lie of the truth, right? And the world, the religious world, that, that's all they want to say. It's okay to have a lie with the truth. And when you say no, then perfect knowledge is the accusation. And you just got to go to the drawing board and you got to start over again and say, I don't think you're hearing what I'm saying. And you just preach the gospel again two of them, about the perfect one that we're talking about, Christ, who is our wisdom. Verse 9, they are all plain to him who understands. See, that's the problem right there. It's not plain to the other people that say a lie is okay. It's not plain to them. It's plain to us. It's just so basic. It's like heavy sigh. You know what I mean? Like, are you here we go again. I thought this was like kindergarten that... No lie of a truth. The truth is free of lies. This Christ is this one as he describes himself. He's not one with a perverted person or work. We, that's unacceptable. This is, should be basic. And that's what this text is saying here. It's plain to people that believe. Nothing twisted or perverse. It's plain. And it's right to those who find knowledge. Verse 10, receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than the choice of gold. We see in other places where it says uh, fools hate knowledge. But wisdom here, Christ is saying that's, that's more precious than gold and silver, these things, wisdom and knowledge about Christ, not just to be a smart person. It's about Christ. For or because wisdom is better than rubies and all things that may, that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Some people watch it live. I said something about rubies. My granddaughter Ruby is out there. Got her attention. But wisdom's better than rubies. Hopefully someday she'll realize that. Verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with sense and find out knowledge of discretions. The fear of Jehovah or the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance and the evil way and the wicked mouth. Now here again in the context, let's, let's not forget about the evil of religion, the evil of self-righteousness. The lies of a false gospel, the, those are included, if not primary, in the focus here. And he says in the last verse that we'll look at here, uh, counsel and sound wisdom are mine. I am understanding. I have strength. So this is talking about Christ, who is wisdom. We might do a few more verses after that, come back to it. Last week, we looked at 
the continuation of Christ being the elect. The Christ is the elect, the chosen one, precious to the Father. And we saw that I focused on and looked at the wisdom of God in that. God is the all-wise, invisible, immortal God, to whom be dominion and glory and all honor forever. Amen. That God, he is the one who is wise enough to choose Christ, the only qualified one. We looked at a few things about he's the only one qualified. So the Father who had been face-to-face with him from all eternity, chose him to be the one to do this task. And I had said, you know, if we know that the Father has wisdom, why don't we follow his lead and just kind of relax in that idea, like God is that wise, he's that knowledgeable. Why would we ever doubt this one that he has chosen, right? That should lend to our assurance and our faith. We saw that Christ was the only qualified one for several different reasons, and throughout the series we'll continue to, to hit on some of those. We saw that that Christ was not self-appointed. He was appointed by the Father, and we'll see some more of that. And we saw that there was a sovereign purpose in the Father doing this, not just some random fatalistic, you know, lackadaisical stumbling of like, let's just do this because I can. There's a purpose in it. And we also looked at the fact that Christ will not fail. We looked at Isaiah 42 that said that. And he took this power, authority, and knowledge, and wisdom, and he accomplished the will of the Father. Look at verse 20 of your text. Let's go on a little bit further. Skip down to verse 20. Christ, again, this is speaking of Christ. I lead in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of judgment I may cause those who love me to inherit riches he causes this to inherit riches what kind of riches I will fill their treasures what what, in the context of wisdom is it starting to sound familiar Colossians in him are hidden All the treasures of wisdom. And if here it says those that love Christ, I'll cause them to inherit these things. They're going to get them. I'm not going to fail in in all the things that are pre-appointed before that point and the result and the fruit and blessings of that. You're going to get wisdom about me and what I did to fulfill the Father's will. Jehovah possessed me, verse 22, from the beginning of his way and before his works of old. We talked about the eternality of the plan and purpose of God and how that they were face to face together. Their wills were in harmony. And look at this, verse 23. I was anointed by the Father from everlasting, from the beginning, before the earth was. We keep seeing that that similar idea keep resurfacing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Let's see something there that's related to this idea of wisdom and God's plan and purpose. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, let's go there and look at something related to wisdom. Uh, should be familiar with this text here. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world. To confound the wise. Now, these are the things that the world thinks are foolish. Paul's not necessarily saying these are foolish. This is what the world thinks foolish. And God's going to use that toward the world or against the world. It's the wisdom of God. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised, and the things which are not, in order to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, here's the reason, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's not about the wisdom of man. It's not about the power of man, the knowledge of man. It goes back to God. 
that focuses on God's wisdom, his plan, his purpose, his power, his fulfillment. And here's the crux of it right here, verse 30. But of him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus. What would we look at Ephesians the first few weeks? And we're going to get back there too. He has chosen us. The Father's chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So here it is. It's a repeat of that, basically. Of him, of the Father, you, you believers, are in Christ. Going back to the Father again. Who of God is made unto us. Christ is made unto us. What? Wisdom. First thing. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, according as it is written in the Old Testament, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, not in man, not in flesh, not in our own righteousness, not in our own wisdom, our own righteousness. We have no sanctification of our own, or we can't buy ourselves, so we need the Redeemer. So, of the Father, Christ has made unto us wisdom. Got messages on sermon audio of each one of those four things from a couple years back. But Christ, in the covenant, we're going to be talking about this. He is our representative. He's the chosen one of the Father to be his people's representative. So representatively speaking, Christ is our wisdom. He represents me to the Father in reference to wisdom. And sanctification and redemption and, and righteousness. He is my answer. In other words, Christ as representative wisdom, he is my argument for God. He's my plea. We've we sing that song sometimes. I need no argument, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. Christ. So when I go before judgment. Or before then, any time before then, right now. My, my argument is Christ. Somebody says, well, why, why do you expect Christ? That's why. That's how. That's why. Him and what he did. When I say, but Lord, Lord, that's, I'm saying, but Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not going to plea anything. That's a bad argument. That argument's already proven not to be able to work. It's unwise. It's foolish. That's what the text is talking about here. Foolishness is your own wisdom, your own righteousness, your own personal holiness that grows to the point that, okay, you're good enough. You can come in. That won't ever work. That's self-redemption. And it's a competition with Christ. And God hates it. And he hates people who at judgment will hold to that. It says that he hates workers of iniquity. But those who don't hold to that idea, who've been forced to actually get that jerked out of their brain with the gospel, God looks at them and they are not in iniquity anymore. The iniquity was transferred to Christ. He took care of it. As a result of that, the fruit of that is getting that idea out of your mind. Now, the wisdom of God is in our minds to where we plea Christ. Christ is our argument for everything. We are complete in our argument that Christ is our completeness. So again, he, Christ, is our logic, our reason. He is truth. He is our answer to all the stipulations and demands and promises and conditions that had to do with the covenant. He fulfilled it all. He's our argument. He is not just that. He's made unto us that. But he takes that. And he becomes the one who does the arguing for us. He is our advocate. He is our lawyer. And he satisfied law. So there's nothing to worry about in reference to losing sonship with God. We're in the family of God. Sonship is not conditional on us. People are always wanting to, at every turn, make grace conditional and put fear in men's hearts. But God's given us a sound mind, the wisdom of Christ. He's given us the mind of Christ, who is the wisdom of God. 
So we want to start looking at this idea of a covenant, the eternal everlasting covenant of grace or redemption between the Godhead, which happened before the world began. And we're not going to get it done today. We're just going to start looking at it. Now, I want us to see everybody, I think, should be um, familiar with the five points or doctrines of grace, the acrostic tulip, how that you spell the word tulip down and you take each letter, T, and go sideways and spell out a different doctrinal head. Total depravity is T. U is what we've been doing the series on, unconditional election. L is limited atonement, or really particular or effectual redemption. I is irresistible grace. And P is preservation. Some people say perseverance, but it spells tulip. Now, for today, I just want us to look at the middle three. Uli. Somebody should call their kid that, and I'll be impressed. Eli is election without the unconditional part. Spells Eli. But unconditional election, limits atonement, irresistible grace. If you take those three middle doctrinal heads, that's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Unconditional election, we know, is God before time sovereignly. He did it. He chose his people in Christ. The Son, of course, it's a no-brainer there. He's the one that performed the atonement, the effectual, sufficient, finished work that he performed to establish a perfect righteousness, whereby the Father, which gave these people, could be represented by Christ to establish that righteousness for, so we could have that righteousness imputed or transferred or reckoned or charged to our account for our justification. It's by the atonement, the work that was done, that was merited. And then irresistible grace is done by the Holy Spirit. So you have the whole Trinity involved here. The Spirit effectually gives life, spiritual life, and brings all God's elect sheep to spiritual life so that they can see and understand and believe and love Christ through the means of the gospel. That's called the effectual call or irresistible grace. It's... it's um, Regeneration and conversion. It's when we are spiritually resurrected. Before then, we were spiritually dead. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian salvation there under the middle three points of the doctrines of grace, Uli or Uli. So that's the way you would pronounce the kid's name, I think, if he was around. Uli. Who's going to do that? Who's going to name a kid? Was somebody planning on that? Get some time. Grandkids are usually when it came to names and nobody wanted to do it, I'd name a pet that, you know, at least I'd get that in there. So the mystery, the scripture talks about the mystery of God. The mystery is revealed down to God's people. It's it's brought down. It's in God's mind. It's talked about in the covenant, in the decree, and, it, and it's brought down unfolded, we could say, unpacked, it's explained, it's taught. Those are some words that all go in that direction of revealing this mystery. It's taught throughout the word of God. Of course, there's clarity in the New Testament. But it shows that God reveals his purpose to his people using the means that we've been talking about. So let's... Take an example. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We've seen this before. It talks about the mystery from before time. And notice how that this is just one text of many to where it shows that it's unfolded for us. God does this not for everybody. It's his glory to show his people. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, right? The God caused light to shine out of darkness, shine in our hearts. The light of the glory of the knowledge is in the face of Jesus Christ. But then in other people, it's his glory to hide things that have to do with him and his son and his gospel. Blind people, send them strong delusion, confuse them, to be foolishness to them. These, uh, this other crowd, the non-elect. There we see the twofold purpose of the word of God. When we deliver the word of God, it's used to convert or to harden. And there we see the dual purpose there. So you can't fail 
when you deliver the word of God. Now, verse 1, Ephesians 3 and verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you nations. What do any other versions say besides nations? Gentiles. All right. That's what I suspected. Sometimes there are other contexts that this idea is used in. It might say heathen or world or Gentiles or nations. Verse 2, if you had heard of the dispensation of grace of God, which is given to me toward you, that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. It's made known to Paul the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, by which... When you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery. So there's a mystery. It was revealed to Paul. He talked about it a little bit before, and he wrote about it a little bit before. And when he wrote about it, he said, now you know about it through my words because of what I know about it. And then in verse 5, it goes further, which in other ages, other times, it was not made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the nations or Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partaker of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's it. That's the mystery. And everything that explains that and unfolds that is everything that it took to do that. There's a lot of pact in here. It's, it's, saying, it's saying this. The old covenant didn't cut it on purpose. It was set up to show sin and what sin required. And it typified the one that would have to die, be the sacrifice, how the law could not be kept. And then here's the mediator of the new covenant. And as that happened, there was a, he was considered, he was called in uh, Hebrews, the reformer, Christ. He showed the way to life as he was the mediator of the new covenant. And he had to shed his own blood, be the priest, be the sacrifice, be the, uh, the altar, be everything that was better. And I say better because the other didn't work at all. And as that uh, transpired, that transition between covenants, the um, Gentiles were brought in at the same time for a few different reasons. And here it is. It all fits together. He has these two folds of two different type sheep, bringing them together, remnant of the Jews, remnant of the Gentiles. Uh, in chapter 2 before this, it talks about that middle, middle wall of partition is, is broken down now. So these are, are one new man, one body. In other words, the church made of Jews and Gentiles. No special treatment for either one. This is now spiritual Israel. The Israel of God, the ones that Christ died for. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I'm made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. This grace is given to me, who I am the least of all saints. I am less than the least of all saints. It's humility there. He said he's chief of sinners someplace else. He didn't talk about, he didn't say, look, people, you don't understand. You don't understand how much I have grown in my holiness and the heights that I have reached. Depart from me. I am holier than you. He didn't say anything near like that. This guy went from town to town. He made tents and he studied and he got beaten by all these different authorities. And he dealt with people and he wept and he cried and he pleaded and he reasoned in the synagogues and with people. And at the same time, going through the early church there with all this crazy stuff that was starting to be twisted in the early church, he gave himself. He's saying, uh, I remember David Atkins before saying, sometimes I just got to pinch myself to 
realize that I, I'm really involved in this thing. This is real. By grace, I'm a part of it. I'm allowed to talk about it. There's no space for pride and, and haughtiness in the church or in the ministry having to do with this gospel. He explains that it's through the effectual working power. He's the one that made the difference. God's the one that made the difference through the effectual power working in him. The grace of God given to me is how it took place. Verse 9, and to bring light, knowledge or sight of the truth, to what is the fellowship of the mystery. So those that have had the mystery revealed, now they're in the, they're in the fellowship of it. It's not a mystery anymore. They've passed out of darkness into the marvelous light. And they see that it's not a mystery. And it's not, it's not just this. It's not just that God's saving the Gentiles too. It's, that's not it. It's more than that. It's the whole thing that we had talked about. The eternal plan going down through the ages. He declares the end from the beginning. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the death of Christ. Magnifying all his character attributes. So notice this. It's, it's been hidden from all eternity in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Verse 10. So that now the rulers and powers in the heavenlies might be known by the church and the manifold or many diverse various ways see the wisdom of God. It's one thing to say God is wise, but it's another thing to dive into his word and see the manifold ways in which he is wise in himself and connected to his wise ways, his acts of what he does, which flow from, of course, his wisdom that he has possesses within himself. Now, notice this. Here's why I brought us here. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we believers have boldness and we have access through confidence or assurance through faith in him. Verse 11 talks about this eternal purpose. The word purpose there in verse 11 is a setting forth that is a proposal or an intention. An example would be that's, that's used here of, of an exposure of something would be, an example would be like the showbread in the temple. It's, it's, here it is. It's purposely put out here on display so people can see it. Now, keep that idea in mind, the purpose of God, remembering that God is all wise, he's eternal, so he has forever eternally resolved to set forth and proposed and intended Christ to be the chosen one, to represent him, to magnify and display his full character, to be both just uh, a just God and a savior to accomplish that sacrifice in Christ. He has always thought that. What this means is we need to see this in light of him being eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all wise and unchanging. And it's hard to think that way because we're not any of that. And it's kind of tough to take one at a time and we don't even understand one at a time, but to take all of them and combine them, it's just like explosions in our brains. There's a guy who wrote a pretty good systematic theology. His name's Dr. Robert Raymond. He said concerning this uh, purpose, I'm going to add the word eternal, which is in front of it in the text. He said this, there never was a time when God's mind was blank or a time when God's plan with all its parts was not fully determined. He never finally made up his mind about anything, unquote. So, so in other words, God thinks differently than we do. The idea is since he's all-knowing and he's eternal and he, he has not changed or he cannot change 
his thought is just one thought. It's not like us. We start, stop, start, stop, react, and then we've got different things that are involved as we react, you know, wrong reactions, in other words. And we have plan B and plan C. This is God's thought has always been, and it's always been the same. And when we look at things in the scripture, that to us look like God changed. It may be that God has used in language to try to communicate to us who are changeable creatures. Some of these terms are called anthropomorphic. Anthro means man. Anthropology is a study of man, for example. So anthro, and then this is this is morphed to our brain so we can, as a human, understand it. So we see that that's transferred to our way of speaking. God has eyes. He has hands. That language, we know he doesn't, he's, he's invisible. He doesn't have any of those. And when we talk about this covenant, the reason I brought it down is when we look at the idea of the language of the covenant, the eternal purpose, we need to remember that these are the type terms that are used. And when we have, like we're having a meeting today after lunch, and we're going to, at a certain point, direct our attention to the things we're going to talk about to prepare for the conference. That's what the meeting's for. So we're going to, we've talked about having the meeting. I posted about having the meeting. We're going to have it. We're going to start it. We're going to end it. And when we leave, the meeting's over with. But you know what? Like six months ago, I had no idea. Nobody else had any idea. We're going to have a meeting today. God's different than that. (laughs) He doesn't have to start or stop or huddle, like gather. Come on, Trinity, let's get together here. It's not like that. That's the way we are. It's not like that for him. He has always thought this, and he's been in harmony with the Trinity about it. Look at uh, Titus 1. We've seen this before, but I want to look at it in that context to start to talk about the the covenant, the eternal covenant of grace. Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in acknowledging of the truth, which is according to godliness. Notice this. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, under Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, adds those things to distinguish the character attributes of God, that God is truth. He always has been truth. He not only won't lie, he can't lie. So this is the God. In other words, he's getting ready to make a statement. He said, now this is the God I'm talking about. I want to make this distinction because I'm God and there's none else. We're not talking about a liar God. So in other words, we're talking about the God of truth. When you hear that, your mind should go, oh yeah, that's my God. He doesn't lie. He's the God of truth. He's caused me to believe the truth. Go ahead. I want to hear what this God has to say. And you can soak it in. You can have confidence in it. And there's another word here that's kind of like another, like over top. You know, a lot of this stuff's kind of like seems common sense, but it's like a preponderance of, of layers where it says now that he said that he promised something. The God that can't lie promised. You've seen another text we're going to get to in a, in a week or two about God swearing something. First of all, the God that can't lie, he promised and he swore. Now, that's going to get your attention, isn't it? I mean, doesn't that kind of like say, whatever this is, this is pretty important. And you can have confidence in it that this is, you're not being fooled here. You're going to be lied to by false prophets, by false religion, by by sinners. But not by this God about this thing. Right? In hope of eternal uh, eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised when? Before the world began. He promised eternal life before the world began. Now, 
Who was around at this time before the world began to make or receive promises? Who was around? None of us were around. We're the ones that are interested in eternal life, right? So this is, this is directing us to our minds to see this is covenant language. This is talking about something that the Trinity talked about before we were around, right? And notice this, but revealed his word in due times in a proclamation with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So here's Paul talking to Titus, and he says, he revealed his word, his gospel about this, what we're talking about here, the, the promise before the, before the foundation of the world concerning eternal life. That gospel's been handed down to Paul to preach this eternal purpose and unfold it, to the, especially to the Gentiles who during this time period was kind of like a new thing taking place. The coming in of the Gentiles were starting to, the early church was starting to populate with Gentiles. And Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, is talking about how these things come in due times. Everything has a due time. The stuff that's in eternity, in due time, it's coming down and being unfolded throughout history. And it's clearer and clearer and clearer. And Paul, he unfolds it for the Gentiles. Another one that we always go to, and this will be the last one, is Second uh, Timothy. The ones that I'm going to here, I, I failed to mention this, contain the U-L-I. All these, the U-L-I. And it goes from, this is what was planned Christ came and did it, and it's revealed through the means of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit works in you to see it. All the ones that we've looked at so far has taken all three aspects of the Trinitarian salvation into it. And here's another one, 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us. This is where it's starting to get into the breakdown of the Trinity and salvation. the Sort of the history of salvation. <clears throat> saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of... He goes, takes it back to eternity there. He starts in time about the holy calling. And then he goes back to remind us in his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the time began, before the foundation of the world, before the ages began. And it's now, it's been made manifest, it's been made known through the appearing of our Savior, the one who came to perform this thing, the one who was the sacrifice that had to mount the cross and satisfy law and justice by that performance, of being the sacrifice in the middle there, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the means of the gospel. So there again is that easy thing to see. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. The whole thing is unfolded from eternity into time, which will result in us being with Christ forever, worshiping him because of this so I've talked about this before, but I want to insert this idea in this series. And this is, I think it's important to see, forgive my redundancy in this, but in connection with what I had just said there about the Trinity involved, the, the showing of the plan, the execution of the plan and the application of it to his people. The consistency of truth of the gospel and, and how that nothing changes the decree of God in his mind, what God, what God has set as he wants. The covenant, the entering in and the agreement between the Trinity of what he wants. 
There's no change from the decree to the covenant. It stays the same. It's all focusing on the preeminence of Christ and doing what we're talking about being done for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that God can be both a just God and a Savior. And we can all eventually see it through the gospel. So the decree, the covenant, and as you come in time, you see, you see prophecies about it throughout the Old Testament. Those prophecies are the same. They don't change. They don't lie about. They're not different than the decree or the covenant. They stay congruent and harmonious. They're the same. Here you come, Christ. Here he is. The prophecies all talked about him. The Old Testament types and pictures and shadows showed him. And here he comes. And he's no different than what all those things have already shown in the decree and the covenant and the prophecies. Here he is. No contradictions. He performs it. Said he wouldn't fail. Well, what do you know? He doesn't fail. It goes on through. He's called the Lord our righteousness way back here. What's he do? Yeah, that's what he becomes. That's what he is. That's what he does. Everything is perfect. Then the Spirit of God records all that through writers and inspires the writers to do what? To say the very same thing that Christ performed, which goes back to what was prophesied, which goes back to the covenant, which was decreed. It's all the same. Doesn't change. Right. And then that message that was recorded by the spirit, we can have it and, and use it. And it comes to us. We hear it. Well, you know, it's all the same. Nothing changes. We better hear it from somebody that doesn't change it because it's got to work that way. If we hear it from somebody that changes it, it's made void. It's called a false gospel. It won't work. OK, so here it comes. The gospel comes in power by the power of the spirit. From faith, from the message, to God-given faith to the hearer. And he hears and believes and sees the very same thing. That is all the same, all the way through. That guy, us, what do we do? We turn around and we evangelize people with that same message that saved us. We don't change anything, right? And then, in reference to that message, as we meet every week and, and talk about everything about it, we have assurance based on what? Okay, now here's it's going to change. We're going to fo not focus on that. We're going to look at ourselves, right? No, come on now. This is what I'm talking about. It does not change. The object of our faith is our assurance in Christ. It doesn't change. It doesn't say, you know, this is, this is really the mystery of all mysteries. It was prophesied really before that other prophesied mystery that when it comes time for you to be saved, now, you have to be the one to sanctify yourself in the end. That is a secret. Only a few people know that. You have to be the one to self-justify yourself by your sanctification. Don't tell anybody because only the elite know this. That's what you've got going on today. I'm hearing stuff like that. Not that uh, sarcastically, but your assurance is in the same thing. When the saints get together to fellowship... It's in the same gospel. Nothing changes. Which means, I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. I forgive you for Christ's sake. It's all in a gospel fellowship, gospel forgiveness, gospel sake relationship. And then that happens for the rest of our life. We think about that. We, we are immersed in that. We grow in that. And then at glorification... We see him face to face on his throne and we worship him because of this whole, the whole thing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? It's, 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 it's all about the, all the, the blood and sacrifice of the son throughout all eternity. We're worshiping Christ for that. So if somebody has a, a shift of focus on themselves, when they get to this from faith to faith and their faith is directed to themselves, it's not going to work out for you. You think you're going to get to judgment and get in on some kind of thing that you're not going to enjoy anyway because it's not focused on you. Christ is going to say, I, I never knew you. You are clueless about the argument. Right? <laughs> I'm the argument, I'm the plea, not what you do. And people are scratching their head like, I, I have to be the one because 
your death didn't secure all for whom you died because the majority of who you died went to hell. That's the way that works in that system. When, when that false Christ failed to redeem all, you've got to turn it to something else and shift the argument to something else. Your plea becomes what you are, what you do, your dead works, your self-righteousness. So I brought all that up just to, to remind us to keep from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between stays the same all the way through. Now, as we as we go into and I'm about done right now here. Uh, I know we had some uh, audio problems at the beginning. I don't know how that's going to be fixed, but it all got on uh, for sermon audio. But. Uh, when we start getting to the covenant, we're going to look at some covenant language in the Old Testament. We're going to look at Psalm 2. We're going to look at Psalm 110. We're going to look at, uh, go back and look at more of some Isaiah 42. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, those are all Old Testament texts. We're going to dip into some explanation of those in the New Testament too. But we're going to see, we had talked last week or the week before about authority that Christ has because he's been given it of his father to do certain things for those that the Father has given him to give eternal life to. And we know that's happened in the covenant. Election happened in the covenant. And again, when I say election happened in the covenant, I'm almost talking about time statements. But the quote I quoted from Dr. Robert Raymond and, and what we know about eternity and how God's thought is one thought. You know, I, and here's why I bring this up. I said something about there's so much here involved in this series. And I'm kind of like kind of hard to put things in place. But you know what? Uh, last night I, I came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter because of this thought of God is all the same. And our thoughts not anyway. So we can enter in anywhere we want at any time. And, it, and it's it's OK. So I feel good about it. OK, you feel good now that I feel good about it. <laughs> So when we talk about uh, election is in reference to happening in the covenant, I, you know, it's I'm just kind of bringing those subjects together in our head, not wanting you in your head. I don't want to force you to imagine scenes and a clock because <laughs> this is eternal stuff, right? It's our own fault when we do that. If we just concentrate on God's attributes of he knows all things he always has known all things because he's eternal and he has the the power and all these things that are woven together all the other character attributes his uh, unchangeableness god doesn't he doesn't learn you have the bad idea that we're going to look at the armenian view of god looking down through the future and seeing and learning and choosing based on conditions God saw in the future, that's an idol. So we'll unpack that. And uh, it'll, it'll help us to appreciate the way God does it. All right, I'm going to stop there. He shall not fail. Now, again, uh, as, we, as we go through here, I want us to continue to see. Keep this out in front of us. That this is... Of course, you're going to see the sovereignty of God, and it's nice. We're going to see it hopefully like never before. It's important to see the sovereignty of God, but let's see it in connection with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are some people, I think, throughout history that wrote a lot of good things about the sovereignty of God that had no idea what the gospel was. And they may be experts on predestination. They might think they know something about election. They might even be super lapsarians and not know anything about Christ or the gospel. They can they know a lot about historic theology. They can know Hebrew and Greek. They can know they can maybe memorize the whole Bible. It does not matter. This is about Christ and the gospel. We have to see it in that light. Sovereignty without the gospel is dangerous. You can look at other religions that have some sovereignty. That the, the the Muslims have a have a message that have a message about sovereignty of Allah. 
it blows the Armenians away. It's impressive compared to Armenians, their view. But you got to have the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in reference to the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions or comments? Oh, when you say our thoughts are not, just to clarify, our, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. You're not saying our thoughts never at any point in time intercept God's thoughts. So that, so that what God thinks of by an object is not what we think of. Like a bicycle. What we think of a bicycle is not what God thinks. No, um, I don't remember using that statement, but I've used it before. But it's an Old Testament quote, I think, out of Isaiah. That his thoughts are not our thoughts. I know this. Whenever I usually say that, I'm referring to the unregenerate mind because of the foolishness, like what we looked at in um, 1 Corinthians 1, because the foolishness of the world trying to be wise, those type thoughts do not line up with God's thoughts at all. But God's people have been brought into a certain level of conformity through the gospel to think because we're spiritual and we have the mind of Christ to think like God thinks now, and we grow in that. We spend the rest of our lives growing in his thoughts and agreeing with him, and that's at different levels with different people. But usually when I say, when I talk about God's thoughts are not our thoughts, I usually talk about it in reference to unregenerate people trying to get a grasp on God and doing it in a false religious way. And God exposing them, and and we expose them about the false gospel. But um, the whole idea of mysticism is a lot of a lot of preachers will try to say like what you had said that we can't think anything like God, and they'll run to texts like uh, Romans eleven uh, at the end, uh, verse thirty six. His ways are unsearchable, and make it sound like we can never know anything about God at any level. You know what I mean? Yeah, they'll say the Bible contradicts itself. Right. Because exactly. God thinks, not how we right. Mystery, paradox, contradictions, um, secrets. They'll go to Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. They only quote half the thing. They go to, uh, I think it was a chapter we were in there a while ago, uh, Ephesians three, where it talks about minds never known and ears never heard. Yeah. Is that where it was? It says, yeah. but. They'll stop there. The re another verse says, but God's revealed it to his people. Yeah, we have the mind of Christ. Right. So that whole, that whole thing, I guess, whenever I talk about our thoughts are not his thoughts, I need to qualify that with each wherever I put that statement. So I can, uh, especially the people maybe listening on the sermon audio or whatever. The majority Calvinist view is that God, the Bible contradicts itself. Yeah. That's why it's okay. They, that's the reason uh, he brought that up is even Calvinists out there believe that the Bible has contradictions in it. And that is why they think it's okay to say another gospel will work. Why not? It doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. Anything else?